Let's open the Holy Scriptures together to Matthew chapter 4. We'll start reading at verse 12 and read through chapter 5, verse 12. And the text that we'll consider is Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast, in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtalim, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left, and, immediate, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Here we end our reading. We're going to look briefly at verses 1 and 2 tonight. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Have you ever wondered what Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry must have been like? If you could have been one of his disciples who traveled with him, around Galilee, Judea, Perea, and other regions, Palestine in that day, what a preaching and a teaching ministry was our Lord's when He walked among us. Jesus' preaching ministry was short, you might say, by human estimation, just three years or so. 
Just three years of public ministry. And yet, how much teaching and how much preaching of the gospel of the kingdom did our Lord perform when He walked among us? You can think of more than one time throughout the gospels where Jesus taught the people all day long. How many sermons He preached. How many lessons He gave. How much personal instruction He brought. That preaching ministry of Jesus Christ was... A fundamental part of his saving work. Jesus is the Savior who came to save his people from their sins. That's the meaning of his name. Jesus, Jehovah's salvation. And Jesus carries out Jehovah's salvation by performing the office of the Christ. And as Christ, he is God's anointed prophet, priest, and king. And as the greatest preacher there ever was and ever will be. The very word of God made flesh. Jesus opened his mouth and taught the people. And his words were the words of eternal life. No one spoke or taught like the Lord Jesus. The Bible only records for us small snippets of our Lord's preaching. In fact, in the Gospels, there are only five or so major discourses of our Lord that are recorded. And there being so few emphasizes how important these sermons of the Lord were and are. And tonight, we start looking at what is perhaps the most well-known of Jesus' recorded sermons. There's no sermon more well-known than Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon that captures our attention. It's so different from any other discourse delivered by a prominent teacher or theologian or religious leader, there is something different about it. And indeed that is true of all of Jesus' preaching because His preaching was the very preaching of God Himself. God in our flesh. The Word made flesh. His preaching was preaching that imparted the true saving knowledge of God. Preaching unlike any other preaching. We're going to have a short series on the Sermon on the Mount. This Sermon of Jesus, which is so well known, is also so very deep. There are layers and layers to it. And this most well known of Jesus' sermons is often one of the most misunderstood of Jesus' sermons. People find all sorts of things in the Sermon on the Mount come up with all sorts of theories about what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And there may be bits and pieces of truth in those many different theories, but so many of the theories far or fall far short of the depth that is contained in this Word of our Savior. Some have found here in the Sermon on the Mount a so-called social gospel, instruction for social relationships among human beings. And while it is true that what Jesus teaches here in the Sermon on the Mount contains much instruction for our relationships with one another, it's a severe misunderstanding to reduce the Sermon on the Mount to just that, a social gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is not just ethical teaching, though it contains much, much Teaching for how we are to live our lives. But it's not just that. It's much more. Some have said that the Sermon on the Mount is not a doctrinal sermon, but purely practical. And that too falls short of reaching the depths that are contained in this discourse of our Lord. To be sure, it is the most practical of sermons. All of Jesus' teaching was. In Jesus' teaching, there was the perfect marriage of doctrine and practice. And we will see that in the Sermon on the Mount as we go through it together. What we will see is that this sermon, which is well known, is a sermon most precious. A word most precious. It is full of Christ. Full of instruction for how Christ's people are to believe, walk, and live. It's a sermon that points back to the Savior preacher and points ahead to the kind of life we are to live for His glory 
It is a sermon which contains treasures new and old and very rewarding is the work of mining the deep veins of this passage of scripture. It's a sermon in which Jesus reveals himself, reveals his own character, what he is like. And it's a sermon in which he teaches about us about what we are to be like. Indeed, what we are like because of his grace. It's a sermon that takes us back to the refreshing fountain of the fullness of the gospel. It's a sermon that takes us back to the fountain of the Christian life. A word that serves well growth both in knowledge and in grace. So why study the Sermon on the Mount for all of those reasons? Instruction, comfort, guidance. Here the Good Shepherd leads us through the green pastures of His Word. We've probably read this passage of Scripture many, many times. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But now as a congregation, let's go through it together and study it in a more intentional way with the prayer that God would bring forth those treasures new and old for our upbuilding of faith, hope, and love. And so we're going to start tonight that short series on the Sermon on the Mount by having an introductory sermon that looks at the sermon as a whole, looks at it from a big picture perspective before we get into the specific contents of the sermon. And so we're going to focus on the first two verses, the opening verses under the theme, He opened His mouth and taught them. We're first going to look at the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, a general overview, its theme, what it focuses on. Then we'll look at the teacher and notice the important connection between the teaching and the teacher. And then lastly, we will look at the taught. That is, those for whom this Sermon on the Mount is intended and is given. He, that is, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them. And the content of that word taught in verse 2 is the entire Sermon on the Mount which follows in Matthew 5, 6 and 7. The majestic Sermon on the Mount. And this passage of scripture is called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus taught this teaching, delivered this sermon while he was up in a mountain, as verse 1 tells us. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, that is when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. We know from other places in scripture that the mountains of Galilee and the mountains of the land of Israel were places where Jesus would often retreat for a time of solitude in prayer a time to spend with his heavenly father to be strengthened and rejuvenated for the rigors of his messianic ministry. But here we see Jesus going up into a mountain to teach. To teach. Now as we approach Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's helpful to set it in its context in Christ's ministry. We can't be completely sure where Jesus preached this sermon or when. We don't know the name of the mountain that he went up into. But it seems that the Sermon on the Mount was delivered early on in Jesus' Galilean ministry, likely near the end of the first year of his ministry after he had called his disciples Near the completion of his first tour throughout the cities of Galilee, you find that referred to in Matthew chapter 4, how Jesus went through the cities of Galilee preaching in the synagogues. It was during Jesus' first year of ministry that he was especially popular among the people. Droves of people came to him to hear him, bringing the sick and the demon-possessed to be healed by him. And we find reference to that the end of chapter 4, 
where it speaks of great multitudes of people following Jesus, not only from Galilee, but from the region of Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from the regions beyond, that is to the east of the Jordan River. Jesus' preaching consisted especially of proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. We find a couple references to that in Matthew chapter 4. First, verse 17, from that time, and there it's referring to from the time of the completion of John the Baptist's ministry, the, the work of the forerunner of the king had come to its end. Now the king, Jesus himself, has appeared. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. And it is drawing near because the person of the king, the promised king, the Messiah, Christ himself, had come to perform the saving work given to him by the Father. The saving work which would establish the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then also in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. The gospel of the kingdom, that is the good news that the kingdom of God is coming. The good news that the kingdom of God will be established through the work of the king. Christ himself. And now the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 through is the grand example of Jesus' preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Here in these chapters we see the king himself, the prophet king, sit and teach the people about his kingdom. And about the nature of that kingdom and the place and the part that his people shall have in that kingdom. That's why really the central concept of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those terms are used basically interchangeably in scripture. The kingdom of God is God's kingdom. The kingdom that comes from God has its source in God. And it is the kingdom of heaven because it comes from heaven and is heavenly in nature. The kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is the sermon on the kingdom. Or more specifically the sermon Concerning the citizens of the kingdom. And so for a moment this evening, let's look at that biblical concept and give it a definition. What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of God? We're going to look at this concept as it comes up throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We can define the kingdom of God this way. The kingdom... Is Christ's spiritual and gracious lordship. And transformative rule. That's really the essence of it. The kingdom is Christ's spiritual, gracious lordship and transformative rule. By his word and spirit. In the hearts and over the lives of his redeemed people. And Christ's lordship is a lordship that is destined to gather his people and ultimately all of creation in its embrace and under its dominion. The kingdom of God is central to the plan and purpose of God throughout time and history. Often in our Reformed tradition we we Focus on the covenant as that central theme of the scriptures. And indeed it is. The covenant is the golden thread throughout the whole Bible. God's relationship of friendship which he establishes with his people in Jesus Christ. But alongside that golden thread of the covenant is the concept of the kingdom. At the center of God's counsel is King Jesus who comes to establish the kingdom. And while the covenant especially focuses on the the intimate relationship of love and friendship that is established by grace in Jesus Christ between God and his people, the kingdom 
is, is a wider idea that focuses on God's purpose to glorify Himself in all things. In the establishment of a kingdom, a gathering of His people under His gracious rule, His Lordship. The dominion of God which shall be established over all. And that kingdom comes, first of all, in the hearts of God's elect people. That's where it begins here in this world. It is established in the hearts of God's people. We know well, Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, where Jesus says to the Pharisees who were demanding of him, when the kingdom should come, Jesus says this to them, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, meaning it comes invisibly, you can't see it with these eyes. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. That's where the kingdom comes. It comes in the heart of the child of God. The kingdom comes when Christ powerfully, by His grace, extends His Lordship over the heart and over the life of one of His people. And exercises his transformative rule over that person. Such that by his word and spirit that person is changed. It's brought out of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. Out of darkness into light. Kingdom comes when the king establishes it in the hearts of his people. The king came to save, to redeem, to crush the head of the serpent, to reverse the curse, to vanquish death, to cover the sins of his people, to fulfill the counsel of God, to usher in everlasting life, righteousness and peace. The kingdom is God's great goal. The kingdom in which he will be all in all, Christ shall rule. And his redeemed people with him for eternity. And that kingdom begins by being established in the hearts of his people. And thus the word of God is the gospel of the kingdom. The word of God sounds abroad the good news that the king has come. That the king is establishing his kingdom. And that he gathers his people into his kingdom. And that all who believe in Christ are made partakers, indeed citizens, of that kingdom. And it is the Spirit who works in the hearts of those who hear the word to impart to them faith. To bring them into that kingdom and under the saving lordship of Jesus Christ. And so at present, that kingdom is a spiritual reality. The gracious lordship of Christ over his people as he rules them, guides them, and transforms them by his word and spirit. But that kingdom which comes in the heart, that lordship of Christ over the life of the child of God is a, is a kingdom that is destined ultimately to gather all of creation in its embrace and under the dominion of Christ. The kingdom is decisively established through the ministry of Christ, his death and resurrection. And throughout the New Testament age, the kingdom is being built as the elect are gathered into the fold, gathered into the kingdom. But at the second coming of Christ, the kingdom will come to its full consummation. The new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness doth dwell, shall be the everlasting setting of the kingdom of God when the curse is finally done away with and this creation which has groaned and travailed, held in bondage, will participate in the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's everlasting life. It's the covenant made perfect and the kingdom fully realized. And that's the Christian hope. The fullness of the covenant. The kingdom fully realized. That's the kingdom proclaimed in the gospel. The spiritual gracious lordship of Jesus Christ and his transformative rule by his word and spirit 
in the hearts of his people, over the lives of his people, which is destined to gather all creation into its embrace and under his dominion. But now let's focus more specifically on the content of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon of the Kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus especially focuses our attention on what it is to be a citizen of this glorious kingdom, this kingdom of God. He focuses our attention on the citizens of the kingdom and the kind of life that the citizens of the kingdom live here and now as they anticipate the fullness of the kingdom to come. The kingdom of God is a present reality It is come, and yet it is also coming, and that's why we are taught to pray, Thy kingdom come. It has come in our hearts, and yet we are yearning for its fullness. But the kingdom having come already in our hearts by the grace of God, that Lordship of Christ which is at work, brings forth a new kingdom life that we live here and now. And that's especially what the Sermon on the Mount teaches us. It's not the easiest of tasks to divide the Sermon on the Mount into neat divisions. The Sermon on the Mount is like a seamless garment. It's difficult to divide it up. The master teacher teaches and one subject naturally flows from the other and into the next. And yet, because the Sermon on the Mount is a logical discourse of our Lord, it is a coherent sermon, we can identify some of its main themes in the progress of its thought. The Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, with a description of the character of the citizens of the kingdom. And then the sermon proceeds in chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, to unfold the nature of the righteousness of the kingdom. And in this part of the sermon, Jesus contrasts the righteousness of his kingdom with the fake righteousness of the world and the fake righteousness that was promoted by the Pharisees in his own day. And then the rest of the sermon focuses especially on the life that the citizens of the kingdom lived. Chapter 6 is a beautiful chapter that highlights the personal relationship that the kingdom citizens have with God their Father. In fact, it is in the Sermon on the Mount where the concept of God as our Father especially comes to the foreground. Remember that Though the Old Testament spoke at times of God as Father, that truth blossoms in the New Testament. And the first place that it really blossoms is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It is here in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer and refers to God as our Father several times. Chapter 6 will especially focus our attention on the fatherhood of God and our relationship to Him. Living before the face of God, which is the heart of true piety. Living in dependence upon Him each day. Then the final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, will focus our attention on the kingdom citizens living out the fear of the Lord and the transformative effect that that has on the way we treat and live with our fellow kingdom citizens as well as our neighbors. One writer stated that the Sermon on the Mount is really a grand elaboration of what our Lord called His new commandment, which we read in John 13 verse 34, that we love one another as He loved us. So that's the, the, the broad outline of the Sermon on the Mount. But now let's focus on especially the opening verses, which we read this evening. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the well-known Beatitudes. That term Beatitudes is used to refer to verses 2, or rather verses 3 through 12. The eight statements, blessed are the. Beatitude 
that English word comes from the Latin word for blessedness. Blessedness. The Beatitudes are a description of the blessed. They are a description of the character of the citizen of the kingdom of God. This is the kind of person that a citizen of the kingdom of God is. The Beatitudes are the essential features of the person who is saved and therefore truly blessed and happy. The character of the Christian. And thus, this opening portion of The Sermon on the Mount is foundational. You might say just as in the kind of sermons we're accustomed to, usually the first point lays out the main concept, which is the foundation for what follows. Similarly here, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes for a good reason. This is the foundation for everything else that follows. This is the grace-fashioned character of the citizen of the kingdom. And so the Sermon on the Mount teaches us, in a very powerful way, what true Christianity is, and what it is to be a true Christian. This is what it looks like, Matthew 5, 3-12. These are the character traits of grace. These are the character traits which we're not born with, but we are reborn with. These are the character traits that we receive from our Heavenly Father by grace. They are the character traits that reflect the image of Jesus Christ Himself. As we go through the Beatitudes, we're going to see what a Christian is. Unlike spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts, one person may be given that spiritual gift, hospitality, and another person might be given a different spiritual gift, and they have different gifts and in different measures. That's something different than what we have here. The Beatitudes describe the character of a Christian. Character that every Christian has. And every Christian is called to manifest. And not just one or two of these Beatitudes, but all of them put together. These Beatitudes are the complete character of the Christian. It's not that we major in one of these and minor in a couple others and then leave the rest for someone else. But what we have here is a full-orbed picture of the kingdom citizen. And from that then flows the rest of the sermon. The blessed citizens of the kingdom live and believe, walk and talk a certain way. And Jesus goes through that in chapters 6 and 7. The blessed citizens of the kingdom are the salt of the earth. The light of the world. They are a people whose righteousness is not an external show. Whose righteousness does not consist of merely the outward observance of rules. But it is a righteousness, first of all, that comes from the King Himself, Jesus Christ. An imputed righteousness, but also a righteousness that is inworked in the kingdom citizen by the Holy Spirit. A righteousness that is a matter of the heart. Obedience to the law that flows from a heart that is full of love for God. Inner consecration to the will of God. The Sermon on the Mount was a refreshing proclamation of God's truth which freed the people of Jesus' day from the yoke of the Pharisees and their legalism. And it is a refreshing word that sets God's people free from similar threats today. The sermon shows that the life of the kingdom is a life of walking with God. Praying to God. Worshipping God. Depending upon God. 
each and every day. Covenantal conversation with Father. Sermon on the Mount sets before us what the center and focus of life is and ought to be. Well-known words, seek ye first the kingdom and its righteousness. And all these other things shall be added unto you. One more thing we want to notice about the teaching in our general overview of the Sermon on the Mount is that the Sermon on the Mount is full, full of gospel. Matthew 4 verse 23 emphasizes that in all of Jesus' preaching, He preached the gospel of the kingdom. The religious leaders of that day preached law and law and more law. There was no good news coming from the pulpits of the scribes and the Pharisees. Only law and more law and works righteousness. But Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. There are many commands. There is much instruction here for how the Christian ought to live. The the Sermon on the Mount is an intensely practical sermon. But it is not bare law. We mustn't see it that way. But it is full of gospel. And we see that when we go back to the fact that the Beatitudes are the beginning of the sermon. That's striking. Jesus doesn't open up his Sermon on the Mount with commands. But he opens up the Sermon on the Mount with a description of who we are as God's people. Blessed. Blessed. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the recipients of God's grace who have been brought into this kingdom. The sermon sets grace in the very first spot. It starts with grace. It starts with the indicative. It starts with the description of what and who the kingdom citizen is Because of God's grace and moves from there to the life that flows out of the workmanship of God's grace. The gospel resounds in the very arrangement of material in Jesus' sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is not a road map for how to become a Christian. It is a guidebook For Christians. How to be what they've been made to be. Saved to be. Refashioned to be. Called to be. It's a sermon that directs us in the life of gratitude. Which is the richest and the fullest and the happiest life. Sermon on the Mount is full. Of gospel. Even as we go through the commands. And the instructions. We will see how the gospel. Is the foundation of it all. And the motivation. To heed. Those commands. So in brief. That's an overview of the teaching. Of the sermon on the mount. And this is a teaching that could only be delivered by one teacher. He opened his mouth and taught them. And the he is none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the only one who could proclaim such a gospel. Such a gospel of the kingdom. For he is the king himself. He is the chief prophet. He is the Messiah. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Word made flesh who came to dwell among us to declare and reveal the counsel of God concerning our redemption. He Himself is the exemplar of this teaching. Christ the King. Sometimes people look at the Sermon on the Mount and they reduce it to just a code of ethic. 
likes. And there's people out there who will say, I, I, I like some of the things that Jesus had to say. I like His Sermon on the Mount. There's some good moral principles there. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is. Though again, it contains the loftiest moral principles that there are. But Jesus is not just some religious teacher, not some wise guru, not a mere prophet who discovers or establishes a new religious sect. He is not some philosopher who founds a new philosophy. He is not some great life coach. He is the Son of God in our flesh. The Savior who came to save His people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And when He opens His mouth to teach, God opens His mouth to teach. That can be said of none other. Sermon on the Mount is the green pastures through which the Good Shepherd leads us. Now, of course, all of Scripture, all of Scripture is the inspired Word of God, is the Word of Christ. But there's something beautiful, isn't there, about reading, studying, and hearing proclaimed some of the very words that Jesus himself preached when he lived and walked among us and which the Holy Spirit has caused to be preserved and recorded in the scriptures for us. Jesus is the teacher, the greatest teacher, the greatest preacher. When he opens his mouth, the mouth of God opens and instructs us. The Gospel of Matthew emphasizes that very point. That this teacher is unlike any other teacher and thus deserves our attention, deserves to be heard, and we ought to hang upon his every word. Notice that the Sermon on the Mount ends and at the end of chapter 7 with a reference to the fact that Jesus was a teacher unlike any other. Verses 28 and 29. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. As one with authority. The king. The prophet king. The overarching theme of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah King who establishes the kingdom of God. And the early chapters of the book of Matthew are all revealing Jesus as the King. You go back to Matthew chapter 1 and you see that. Matthew chapter 1 traces Jesus' genealogy according to his human nature and connects Jesus to Abraham and to King David. Making the point that this Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. He is the promised son of David who will sit upon the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus is connected to that royal line of David a royal line, yet a humble line. A line that is full of sinners. But sinners that the king came to save. And that's the second part of Matthew chapter 1. The second part of Matthew chapter 1 records the, the revelation of the virgin conception of Jesus Christ to Joseph. And that wonderful word of the angel, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He is the Savior, the Son of God, whose glory and majesty is veiled behind the humility of His assumed humanity, and yet He is the King. And that theme unfolds more in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come from the east, and they bow and they worship God in the flesh, and they present their 
gifts to him. Christ the King. And then in Matthew chapter 3, we have the appearance of the King. On the banks of the Jordan River, where he begins his public ministry with his baptism by John the Baptist. There the very heavens open and the Father speaks, designating Jesus as His beloved Son with whom He is well pleased. The Savior who has come to fulfill all righteousness, who is baptized not for His own sin, but baptized unto His death, baptized for His people's sins, which He would take upon Himself and carry His whole ministry long and pay for upon the cross of Calvary. And then you come to Matthew chapter 4, which begins with Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. The king, having manifested himself, having begun his public ministry, goes into the wilderness and does battle with the devil. The great enemy who seeks to turn the king away from the path of obedience, the path that would ultimately lead to the cross. And all of the temptations of the devil tempt Christ to disobey, to seize the crown, to seize glory without walking the way of suffering appointed to him. But mighty King Jesus defeats the devil and emerges victorious and will continue on that path of humiliation and suffering. And the Gospel of Matthew traces that all the way to Calvary and then to the empty tomb. Christ, the King. And that's why He is a teacher like no other. And this sermon is a sermon like no other. Ultimately, the content of the Sermon on the Mount is Christ Himself. You can't separate what is taught from the teacher. The sermon from the preacher. The word from the word made flesh. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount preaches Christ and points to Christ. And guides us in a life that is grounded in Christ and Christ's work. The Sermon on the Mount, though it shows us the character of the Christian. The character of the citizen of the kingdom. Ultimately it shows us the character of our King. Sermon on the Mount will humble us because as it sets before us the exalted character of the citizen of the kingdom, we will see how far short we yet fall. And it will drive us to the cross of our King where we find forgiveness. But as we look at the sermon, as we look at the Beatitudes, we see the portrait of our most blessed Savior. Christ's Sermon which is Christ-centered, and in which Christ Himself feeds us with Himself. That's the teacher. Finally this evening, the taught. He, Christ, opened His mouth and taught them, them. The them refers especially to Jesus disciples. To be sure, there were multitudes of people that heard the Sermon on the Mount. That's clear from the verses concluding chapter 7. That there were multitudes who heard the sermon and they marveled, they were astonished at the authority and power with which Jesus taught. And undoubtedly that was a mixed multitude. Many among that multitude were edified by this sermon. Faith in Christ was kindled and worked by this sermon. And there were others who were cut to the heart. There were others who were hardened. The Sermon on the Mount, like all gospel preaching, was a double-edged sword. The point is, this sermon was for them. This was especially a word of the King to His citizens, to His people, to His disciples. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' disciples sat at His feet and learned from Him. And that's what we get to do as we go through this passage of Scripture. We will sit at the feet of Jesus and hear His Word. And have His Word 
penetrate our hearts. Lay hold of our hearts. Work powerfully in our lives. Let us come with that hunger for the word of Christ. To sit at the feet of our King. And hear his word. We need to be taught. We need that teacher. That one and only teacher. The saving teacher that is Jesus Christ. Who shepherds us. With his instruction. With his doctrine. With his commands. Shepherds us. In the way of righteousness. And on the straight and narrow way. Unto life eternal. May the Holy Spirit. Work by this word. As we enter into it. To apply it to our hearts. More and more. Refashion us in Christ's image. To be. Kingdom citizens. Who manifest. The character. Of Christ. Amen. Faithful God and heavenly father. We thank thee for all of the scriptures. We thank thee for all of thy word. And as we begin tonight, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the rich instruction that it contains, we pray that Thou wilt open our hearts to this Word. May it be a Word that pricks us so that we see our sin and come to a deeper knowledge of it. May it be a Word that turns us in repentance unto Thee to find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. May it be a word employed by thy spirit to further our sanctification. So that as those who have been called out of the darkness of the kingdom of this world. Into the light of the kingdom of thy dear son. We might grow. Grow in the ways that we manifest. The true character of thy kingdom. Bless thy word unto our hearts. and Give us soft pliable hearts that are ever receptive to the teaching of the greatest teacher. This we ask in his name. Amen.